Welcome to Military Network Radio, where we'll bring dynamic interviews and fresh information about topics affecting your quality of life at each stage of your military service. Join us each week for information of value that improves your outlook, actions, and encourages each member of the family. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Everyone serves, and together we make a difference. And now, here's your host, Linda Crater. Greetings, and welcome to Military Network Radio. We have a wonderful show for you today. I think you've all heard our tagline, which is, everyone serves, and together we make a difference. And today we're going to be talking about PTSD and children, what we know and what we need to know, because these are the the smallest members of our military family, but they also end up with repercussions, if you will, or consequences from any behavioral or, or damaging conditions that come from combat. And I'm joined today by veteran Les Davis. Les, good to be with you as always. Always great to be here, Linda, and thank you for the invite, and especially with this subject, because we, uh, we see it so often. I didn't know the, the exact name of it, but in the military community, you know, as we come back from the first Gulf War, which I was involved in, we kind of seen this, but I, I don't think it was even diagnosed back then. I don't even know if they were diagnosed back No, you're right. You're right. And it's only recently that secondary PTSD or secondary PTS, however you may be hearing it, um, is is being known. And so the family members, so the mill spouses, that has been getting more study in the last five years. But children are being greatly affected from infancy to, you know, elementary school to middle school and into our youth. And we will be talking today with an expert who can tell us, you know, what they now know from research, um, what we have all seen anecdotally. But it is PTSD awareness and we want to make sure that we're drawing attention to every aspect of this problem because some people don't even know that you can have PTSD. So when you tell them, you know, what you're sounding like is that you have taken on some of these uh, behaviors by observance, by reaction, you know, etc., it makes a difference when they understand that they're not going crazy, that this anxiety level, etc., is, is going to war is a choice that affects the entire family. Oh, there's no doubt. I can just imagine how a, a child, a young child, would feel if a, a, a service member comes back from a combat zone and he is not right and he starts having outbursts. Can you imagine that child, the fear, the anxiety, the he may even get angry. I mean, it is it's something that is a heck of a topic. I'm looking forward to this today. Completely. You know, I am too, because from working with veterans, with veteran caregiver, I am very well aware that PTSD in the household can affect friendships, schoolwork, relationships, the community, sleep, you name it, and it can have some severe repercussions. So let's welcome to the show Paul Watson, who is the Chief Health and Research Advisor of Hero Missions, an organization that works to help find out ways to help these children and what we do know and what we need to know. Paul, welcome to Military Network Radio. Good morning. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, I'm very honored to, to be here. Um, it's uh, early afternoon in the UK, but yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, discussing and, and sharing knowledge and, you know, collaborating on, on what, like you say, what we know and what we don't know. You know, as 
as an academic um, in training, it's, you know, we, we only know so much, you know, life experience offers us another perspective, uh, which creates a whole picture um, in terms of, you know, what we research uh, and the lived experience. And it's about bringing that together. Um, so I think, you know, this is going to be really interesting. It is going to be interesting and we need your expertise. I know you and I have spoken previously about uh, children on the autism spectrum, um, which presents a different set of issues. But then when we're talking in general about secondary PTS, etc., let's go back and have you define for us, you know, about this acquired uh, behavioral issue because most people think, well, you know, things have changed. He or she is very different now after returning, but, you know, maybe I'm just not getting used to them. They are really relieved when they find out that there is something real about this. So talk about secondary PTSD to set the stage for where we go further in the show. Yep. So um, secondary PTSD has a similar um, symptomology as as first degree uh, PTSD. Um in terms of you know the signs and symptoms are, are pretty similar, um, but I think what what is important, and I don't want to try and jump the gun in case you know it, it comes up later, is we have to look at the child and the, the parent uh, and the family, sorry, before they actually deploy, because there is some you know symptoms and presentations of children and young people before um, deployment, and and I think this starts in training, so it's about looking at the symptoms of the children and the families um, prior to deployment, during deployment and the reintegration because a lot of the presentations may be similar in some families. So it's about picking out the differences between mood changes as in depression or feeling anxious that your parent is going away or that they're serving for however many months. Um, And then we kind of look at um, whether this has a similar pattern to PTSD. You know, that was, that's pretty interesting that you say that you, that you look at the family before they deploy, because I was, as I was studying this more, I was wondering is how would you know the difference between like a, a normal teenager outburst through growing and hormone changes to the effects of secondary PTSD? Is there, is, is it during that study that you're saying that you would conduct, would that be something that you would look at? Yeah, of course, because um, what we're kind of looking at is we're breaking down age groups because children go through different stages within their lives and it's hard to kind of correlate a one lifetime. So first, it's better to look at, you know, under five, six to, you know, eights, because this is when um, the body and the brain develops and, you know, mm-hmm. You know, females go through hormonal changes as well as men. So, you know, that chemical imbalance uh, on top of having um, parental separation um, and how that impacts on the attachment style um, can really create um, issues within the family that, you know, they didn't really recognize at first because they had good attachment or there was a slight adjustment in attachment. But now that attachment bond's totally broken. Um, so children, you know, some young children, younger children, sorry, you know, they don't really understand what is going on. And all they can do is um, communicate that problem by um, actions. Um, so that could be that their, their mood changes, they become you know, um, more aggressive, m- more quiet and isolated, irritable, um, losing interest in things. So it's about looking at 
that symptomology and the presentations that they present and kind of mapping that. Um, so you can go to your physician and say that this is what's been happening prior to deployment. This is what's happening during deployment and um, post-deployment and the reintegration of the family. You know, we can look at you know, what the changes have been. You know, Paul, this is Linda. I am not sure that this is being done. I mean, up to this point, children, uh, there, are, there are little pamphlets you can read. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might have your pre-deployment uh, training for the whole family where they bring everyone together. But children to this point have been thought that, well, that's the family's issue. You know, we really need to just clear the heads of those going to serve. And I don't know that there's a of pre-deployment baseline for people to look at these days. I think there's a lot more attention placed on post-deployment and the readjustment. But I do agree with you that we're seeing a lot of the mood changes or um, there, there, actually in each age group, there are different symptoms or behaviors. Could you yeah. talk about it from those age groups? So before five, what you might see and let's talk post-deployment because I, I really think that that's where most people are uh, seeing it. So very young, uh, then to elementary school, and then less, you can move into the youth and teens. Yes. Yeah, so um, I think for me as a, as a practitioner, what I've been seeing when I was working in a military garrison as, as the school nurse, I think with the you know under sixes, um, it was a lot of... Um, increase in nocturnal neurosis, uh, daytime wetting as well, um, withdrawing from play or, or becoming quite aggressive in, in play. Um, so it, in terms of aggressive in play, I mean, like, you know, banging toys together where they wouldn't do that uh, mm-hmm. and being quite angry um, <clears throat> and, and fighting and biting. And I think that kind of um, accelerates due to anxiety because they haven't learned the vocabulary or, or the skills to kind of look at, you know, how do I cope with all these changes? Um, and obviously their brain's still developing as well, you know, their, their frontal lobe's still developing and their neurons. Um, so I think, you know, that's something that, you know, we kind of need to look at for uh, pre uh, under six year olds. Um, and then when we go into the elementary school, again, it's, it's, it's a kind of similar symptomology, but, but it becomes more present in the fact that, you know, they start fighting with uh, siblings, fighting with peers at school, their um, behaviors at school change, where they might have been getting along really well um, and reaching their their academic attainment, you know, that can kind of drop and they lose interest in school um, and, you know, just sitting crying for no reason. And this is, the list is endless when, when we kind of look at, um, you know, that, that age group particularly because they are going through a lot of changes themselves between, you know, six, six and 11. So to add the external factors of what already is going on from their biochemistry anyway, it, it, it makes... It makes that period of childhood really difficult to kind of comprehend. Which makes perfect sense because it's a difficult time anyway, unless things are very, very stable. But when you return, there's also some, and we'll talk about this after the break because we're coming up on our first break. There's also a lot of social factors that are affected um, for children. And we tend to think of that mostly in the adults 
But in the children, it's very much uh, affected by PTSD or the behaviors of the parents. And so after the break, we will talk about that. We are talking with Paul Watson today, the Chief Health and Research Advisor of Hero Missions, working with children and what we know about PTSD and children and what we need to know. And we will be back after these very short messages. Stay with us. You won't want to miss this. This is very important information. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. This is D.V. Kidd from NewsWithViews.com. My new book, Taking Politics Out of Solutions, is now available. Why is it nothing changes no matter who you vote for? My book covers the most critical issues eating this country alive, as well as the solutions that are already there that Congress and the agenda-driven media don't want you to know. From the disaster of our economy, why we will never have any economic freedom until the Fed is abolished, trade, the meltdown underway called Obamacare, the truth about Social Security and Medicare, and the fraudulent ratification of the 17th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, a very big issue that affects every American. The answers and solutions are in my book that all Americans need to read because the worst is coming at us like a freight train. To order, please call one 800 955 Recently, while my family was skiing in Colorado, we were greeted by a red fox that darted out of the trees. This beautiful animal with his big bushy tail just stood in the snow and stared right at us. Maybe he smelled all the loverwort we had in our pockets. Loverwort is another word for junk and snack food. Typically, a red fox eats scrub and woodland, but this one appeared to have had his share of hamburgers and hot dogs from the chalet grill. Foxes are similar to dogs, except they are not pack animals. The female fox, or vixen, typically gives birth to a litter of 2 to 12 pups. When they are young, they all live together as a family, known as a leash of foxes. Once grown, the young foxes leave the burrow and go out to live on their own. It's I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with Paul Watson about PTSD and children. Uh, Les, you had a question. We were talking on the break. Yeah, we were talking earlier about the younger kids um, from, you know, like maybe five to eight. Can, can you give us some examples of the behaviors of the, the tweeners, you know, the, the ones that are in the, between the ages of uh, nine and 12? Yeah, yeah, no, because uh, we, we call them the preteens here. Um, so, <laughs> um, so it's just mapping the teenage years. But I think, you know, one of the biggest things for, for preteens is, is their uh, kind of, they're going through puberty. So there is that uh, natural chemical imbalance, you know, and their bodies are changing as well as like we've discussed earlier, where, you know, they've got these external factors which they have to cope through. But what a lot of the research is showing is um, between that age, because 
even non-military families, that age is when you start testing out your boundaries um, in terms of uh, maybe starting to smoke or take uh, trying a cigarette or trying some alcohol. Um, and I think with the um, extra stress of having uh, a parent reintegrated into the family who is maybe totally different to how they, they you last seen them two two years ago or or however long the de uh, deployment was um there's a kind of increase in um risk taking behaviors and by risk taking behaviors um i mean um you know having more alcohol than than a civilian population or someone who isn't stressed or 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 anxious about a family member. Um, there's an increase in um, weapons abuse. Um, there's an increase in sexual abuse. Um, but importantly, um, self-harm becomes uh, an everyday norm for, for pre-teens and, and later on in, in teenage life um, due to stress. And it, it's having that ability to be able to open up a family uh, and, and talk openly um, without any risk or fear um, in terms of we know them for instance we know the mum might be kept being a caregiver for for the for the father who might have PTSD and there, there might be a number of children within that family so I think children who are in the pre-teen bracket they they have an assumption that their parents are already going through enough so why would I add anything to that when I can cope with it myself by hiding away maybe in my bedroom and just releasing the tension by cutting myself. And and, and when we talk about self-harm, it, it goes a lot in grades uh, in mm -hmm. terms of, you know, maybe a scratch, um, then a kind of cut that doesn't quite break the skin to bleed. And then you're looking at, you know, a different severity than when you start to draw blood and then you start to get tissue damage as well. So the higher the, 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 the well, we say the deeper the child goes, the, the, the more issues that they are trying to cope with that they can't. Um, so they want this quick release. Um, so that the cut gives them the, the release of pressure, um, the release of stress, but it's only, you know, momentarily released. It's, it, it's not, a, you know, we know that it's, it's not solving anything really, but it's about having um, an open and honest conversation, but that has to be done with the family. Um, and I think that's why sometimes when leaflets are given out, it's it's great to have the information. It really is. But, you know, how many people actually read that information? And I think right. that's why that's why we need to move away from just providing information. We have we need to have a, a follow up, you know, and that's something that, that, you know, Heroes Mission is doing. We have that follow up to say, you know, You've been released from the, the VA, for instance, um, with uh, PTSD, um, and we notice that you've got children. So, you know, we will, you know, come and do an assessment. You know, it's about following up and making sure that um, everything is validated, because by sending out a leaflet, you don't really validate its use, because you don't really follow up on a leaflet unless someone contacts you. But then if a whole family is working really hard to, to contain um, a parent with PTSD and, and obviously the, the different spectrums of levels of PTSD, um, then it, it, a leaflet becomes secondary to, to anything else that's going on within that household.
I could not oh. agree more, and yet that is often the government's response. We, we gave you information or go to this website, but let's talk about some of these things that you're talking about in, in even more detail. The risk-taking takes place. There is a natural cultural norm in the military of, as you said, not adding to the stress of the family, but they're also very mindful of harming their parents' careers. So yeah. there's an added pressure to the preteens and teens about not rocking the boat, and so they hide their behaviors. Um, we've had on Judy Davis, who has started an organization uh, called Dasium that works to do exactly that because she had her son uh, more than cutting, um, actually tried to commit suicide twice. And they had those conversations and they opened them up. But you talk about follow-up. The parent has to be aware that this is more than just a, a mood change and it's more than just a, quote, adjustment. Mm -hmm. And yet the, the things that the children will exhibit is things like well, they, they're afraid to have their friends over because they don't know if mom or dad is going to have a bad day. Yeah. They feel as though anger is directed at them when it often has very little to do with them and their behavior. And it, it can get to be a very vicious circle where one hides from the other, the other as outbursts feels terrible, but perhaps doesn't say anything because it wasn't a big deal. It, it can be a very poor communication time. And so how do you suggest, what are some tips you suggest for parents to open those conversations? Because teenagers don't generally want to talk to their parents. No, no. but, it, but the, the parents know, know their child better than anyone, don't they? So they, right. know, they know their little nuances and, and kind of, you know, what makes them tick. So I think for me, it's about kind of looking at the, the, the parent without without the PTSD, um, you know, has a lot going on, but I think they have to be mindful as well as, you know, the child might be presenting other issues as well. So whilst I don't want to say, you know, we have to burden the caregiver with extra stuff, they just have to be mindful to say, look, I know that you're, you know, you're going through some stuff. Let's, let's book a date. Let's go bowling or let's go, you know, to, to McDonald's or wherever, you know, and let's have you know an hour to ourselves where we can talk, because um, I think that's where the, that validates the child's feelings. Because mm -hmm. the, a parent has noticed and wants to take the time um, to do that, but then it's about having service provision to then come in and, and give that family time to do that. If the symptoms of uh, primary PTSD with with the adult is that severe, so. Because what we don't want is for the the, the non-PTSD parent and the child to go away, then worrying about the primary PTSD parent. So because then that that doesn't kind of validate anything about going away from the situation. It just kind of increases it. So it's it's about having a, a linear service, which is a, or a wraparound service, sorry, that can that can support the whole family and their whole needs. You know, as we move into the teenage years now, do you, when we see the, because normal, you know, normal teenagers are going through, like we talked about earlier, all yeah. the emotional changes, but then we see a much more um, 
maybe an aggression toward more aggression toward their siblings, or maybe they withdraw more than normal teenager would, or uh, they become just numb and they start taking on, uh, maybe they try to take on more of a role of a parent. I mean, what do you, what do we see here in the teenagers? Yeah, I think there is um, a kind of behavioral shift um, in terms of if, if the child or if the teenager, sorry, is uh, been given more responsibility in the house, um, then you know that increases, you know, that does increase their confidence. Um, but it also changes the position of where they sit within their family. So we can kind of look then at is this something about parentification? Is the child becoming a parent and not being able to live as a as a child? So that in itself can bring in you know behavioral problems because they don't want to do this they're being forced to do this but some some teens absolutely love it you know the majority of teams really really do love it um it, it gives them a sense of purpose so whilst i don't want to say this is all negative because it, it isn't mm-hmm. um it's just we have to highlight what the negatives are as well because i think what people uh, or what people may not understand is that military families go through um, a variation of vulnerabilities. They're vulnerable at different times. So whilst they might be okay pre-deployment, then they've become quite vulnerable post-deployment. And this is shown within the research, actually, uh, in America that during deployment, there's an 11% increase in teenagers attending hospital, mental health hospitals, because of poor mental health, because they're they're not able to cope with the stress of teen life and a parent being deployed. Because when that parent is deployed, that could be 18 months of anxiety for that child. You know, so that's what they're holding in a bag for 18 months. Is my parent coming home, you know, as well as. So that presents itself as external behaviours. Um, you know, the aggression, the fighting with siblings for no reason. Um, because I think then it's just they want to kind of get some attention um, because they're scared and they're worried. And because they're teenagers. Yeah. But well, I tell you that 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 is on top of everything else because they know when they get back, there's a possibility they might move, they might, uh, you know, go to another school district and make have to make new friends. On top of everything else. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and this is where it comes about the drift in vulnerability. Um, you know, moving creates great resilience, um, but for some, it is their absolute worst nightmare, um, and can create. Um, anxieties themselves uh, just by the thought of moving so in terms of kind of looking at how we support that is it is about a physical assessment you know I, I we're coming up on another break i'm sorry the physical assessments I, I wish they were happening more often than they are but they are very valuable to take a look at so we will talk further about the teenagers when we come back from this very short break and we're listening to military network radio stay with us we're military network radio and we'll be right back after these short messages Sell 
celebration of what would have been author of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Roald Dahl's 100th birthday, Oxford University Press has published the Oxford Roald Dahl Dictionary. The dictionary is both authoritative and a little bit mischievous and includes everyday words plus those invented by Dahl for his books. One of my favorite words from the dictionary is Zazimus. That is what the big friendly giant calls the stuff that dreams are made of, which he whisks with his magical egg beater. Roald Dahl loves the letter Z, which he uses in his mystical words like fizz whizzing, zip fizzing, and zunk. By now you might be feeling a bit biff squiggled. That's another word for confused or puzzled. It's I'm Carolyn Davidson and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, trishagoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back. Let's take on the aspect of communities. We've been at war for 15 years. Some communities have given enormous numbers of uh, service members to the cause. And others are living in an area where only maybe two to three people are uh, deployed or there is not an understanding. Let's talk about the community understanding and the importance of teachers and leaders, uh, church leaders, others who are surrounding our children and families, and how we can open communication channels and keep them open so that everyone has an idea that if they see red flags or even are concerned... A child knows they have many places to go to because we've all heard stories where someone felt they didn't have anyone to talk to or a teenager peer knew something was going on but didn't feel comfortable going to the parent or the scout leader or whatever it may be. How do we open those communication channels and inform our communities better? Sorry, sorry. Um, Yeah, I think what we need to do, I think the most important thing I think is about identification, because if we're talking about numbers, maybe from one to 200, you know, identification is variable. Um, Whereas, you know, if there's a school on a a base or around a base, you know, the the higher percentage of them children are, are, you know, going to the the military, going to that school. But when you talk about... um, the National Guard or the Reserve, you know, that there might be, you know, two, three, four, five children in, in one school. Um, so I think it's about identification. I think for me, that comes down to 
um, when you enroll in a school, it's about asking that question. That question needs to be on the um, enrollment form. Is are you part of the military? What part of the military? Um, and how best do you feel that we, we can communicate what is going on with your family in terms of deployments and training? You know, it's like, we, like we discussed in the break, it, it's not all about being deployed to a, a war zone. You know, the military is always training. I remember when I was in the military, um, we um, were always training. If we weren't away, we were training. So you, whilst you might be at home, in inverted commas, you're away. Um, so, you know, that's where the community comes in. And I think, you know, I, I said this the other day that a community makes a family. Um, and, and the military is one big family. And, and whilst they're all together, that family is a brilliant functioning working unit in the main. But when you're away from the military uh, in terms of, you know, the reserves or the National Guard, it, it, it makes that a little bit harder. Um, and it's the same here in the UK. We don't quite acknowledge the reserves as, as, as well as... Um, the full-time military personnel but that's something that's being worked on but I think once once we know how we identify them then that opens up how we communicate with them um, so that can be you know emails between uh, parents and teachers head teachers um, governors but I think there has to be a kind of um, a system um, and here in the UK what we use for our young carers um, in schools is if they're having a problem um, then all they they have a card in their pocket and all they have to do is put this card up and they can leave the classroom without any questions being asked and they can go to uh, a point of contact which is um, devised by the school so it could be like one person who is who is the point of contact for the carers and they go to that person and that person is always there for for all the carers or or children who are who are struggling and we had we used the same uh, principles in the military garrison where i was at that if if a child is becoming disruptive then they're disruptive for a reason um, and it's not because they want to be naughty it's because they're struggling with something that they can't communicate um and that you know, that goes through all um, periods of childhood, you know, all sections. And I think with the teens, it is um, quite pertinent that, that we kind of work together in collaboration with teens to, to work out what's best for them, because they know what they want. You know, that they, they mm -hmm. are quite they are quite stubborn beasts. Yeah. So, <laughs> Teenagers? <laughs> nah. So they, they know what they want. So it's it's about having a conversation with them to say, look, you know, you are the expert in yourself. You tell me how I can help you and what method you want me to help you and, and how is that going to work? So we have to we have to move away from, you know, a top down approach to to dealing with with uh, problems within military families or even families in general. It has to come from the baseline. We have to work from the bottom upwards because we have to take the expert and that expert is that family and that family members because we have to take the qualitative data from that family and yes it might be similar to someone else's but it would be similar in a very different way they might all be you know you can have 10 families with teenagers who are self-harming at the, at the same in the same period of time but but it'll be what triggers that 
teenager to self-harm will be very different to another teenager in the same situation. So it's about collecting that data, and that data is so, so important. But collecting that data costs so much money. And I think the problem um, with prevention is it's only um, it's a long-term measure. And if you, if you relate that to funding, and funding comes from government um, or charities. So if I take government, for instance, politics is only five years. Um, is it four years in America, isn't it? Is that the term? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So, so when, you look at, when you look at prevention, it's only preventing for four years because that's the term of office. But if, if you had someone who, if that was taken away from politics and it was given to researchers and health promotion and public health people to say we need to look at long-term issues and get uh, a longitudinal uh, look at what is actually going on Mm -hmm. then that takes it away from um, politics and policy it it actually brings it back down to the front door of a person's house to say that we want to know what's going on here we know you've had problems and we want to know why so when you know why you can do a critical analysis to look back at, you know, the signs and symptoms and what triggered that family to get there. So you're looking at the steps pre um, the uh, issue and, you know, the safeguarding issues that, that, that are kind of presenting now. Is there, do you know if that question about military or veteran will, is being added or will be added? Um, I, I'm thinking if, if that would have been added you know, back in the early 90s in America, when we really started downsizing the active forces and we started really utilizing the reserve forces, how much of a benefit and how much information we'd have right now if we did that back then. But if it's not added there at this time, do you know if it's going to be at any any time soon? Um, to be honest, I don't, I'm not sure about um, the American system um, because I've only been with um hero missions for, for two months now so I'm just getting my way around the system in America because it's totally different to, to obviously the UK system but I think it's it's definitely something that we're raising it um, because we we ask within our surveys you know what force you're in so that that captures everyone whether you're full-time reservist you know it captures everyone and that's something that, that needs to kind of be spread nationally because without the data, we don't really know what's going on. We don't really know what's going on. So if we don't know what's going on, how can we help? But then on the flip side, which is really negative, but I think it's a, a, a pertinent point, if, we, if it isn't asked, then we don't need to deal with it. Right. Uh, then the other question that I have a follow-on would be, what is, what is VA doing you know, uh, about this for our active service members and their kids? Um, what is their stance and what do they say about this secondary PTSD? Well, like I said, I don't really, I'm just getting my, um, navigating my way around your system. Um, But, you know, looking on their websites, I think, you know, it is, they're looking at kind of signposting uh, and information sharing. Um, So that's, that's what I get from, from their websites. It's it's not that I'm trying to be negative, but that's what I see. That's reality. as an outsider so right. um, I don't know how the system works um, and that's something I'm getting to grips with um, because it is really complicated um, 
so that is something no, that Paul, I... you're correct though you're correct it's that they're they're only now getting around to understanding that you know one week of camp with other kids of wounded warriors for example is a good way to go and some groups have been doing that for years but there is no systematic network of family care there is on the bases um, yes. There are, you know, yeah. SVAC units and, and that kind of thing that can help, but there really isn't a lot of that. I want to talk in the brief time we have before the final break. There is also a great deal of guilt among the parents when they see this happening to their children. So you've got a multifold, complex situation where parents almost need to separate themselves from the children while also working on their own own issues about secondary PTS and treatment for the veteran, um, because those that do not get treatment are not likely to get better. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And a lot of um, the research and, and you know the, the RAND research on the caregivers, you know, mm -hmm. and over over here in the UK, is the caregiver burden is absolutely huge, um, and that needs looking at in greater greater detail on. On, on a frontline basis um, and it's, it's not a case of taking them away for a night out or a day or a week here right. it's about actually implementing a service that really matters to that family to keep them stable because what you don't want it costs a lot more money if that family go into crisis than if you put a team in to keep them stable um, so oh you're using logic again there Paul <laughs> oh my so, Sorry. I mean, you know, really. <laughs> Sorry, I know, but I know we're going to break soon. But I just want, I want to raise one point. You know, over here we, we've calculated the cost of caring, um, and for every pound we spend on a caregiver, we save the economy four pounds. So why wouldn't you do that? We yeah, agree with you. I can tell you, Les and I agree with you wholeheartedly. I, I think, though, that that's a tough argument in the United States right now because there are so many other issues with veterans. And unfortunately, the children fall to the bottom unless they're organizations like yours do take the time to to understand and implement processes that help these kids. We are going on our last break and we yes. will come back and talk further about the justice system, loss of faith and safety in the home. Stay with us. We're Military Network Radio and we'll be right back after these short messages. voters reminds you that on election day we are all equal please join your friends and neighbors by registering to vote and going to the polls november 8th visit www.vote411.org to find out who will be on your ballot and how the voting process works in your community this election is about our future and we all need to weigh in. It's Women 
need larger parking spaces? The owners of the Togla Rest Stop in southeastern China think so. They have created a number of parking spaces that are 50% larger, designated for female drivers, with the international symbol for women and outlined in pink. When asked by a Chinese newspaper why they felt the need to enlarge the parking spaces for women drivers, a lot manager explained that they observed female drivers having a difficult time parking, which slowed down the order of traffic. I'm a bit of a baby bummel or bungler when it comes to parking, but is this really necessary? Actually, I was complimented on my parking the other day. Someone left a note that said, "Parking fine." It's I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back. We're continuing our discussion about PTSD and children. And one of the programs that does appear to be taking an avid interest in children, young children and teens uh, in the military families is the justice system with the growing use of veteran treatment courts. And we have several shows that you can reference about veteran treatment courts at militarynetworkradio.com. But what those are treating families who have fallen afoul of the law. And yet it brings in all kinds of resources for the partner, for the children, uh, mandating treatment, and it's very important. Talk about how those services for children are really looking out for the well-being and legal needs of the children. Yeah, I think what they kind of, from what I can gather from, you know, reading quite a bit about the, the judicial system in, in the U.S. is, you know, they kind of do look at a whole picture um, approach of a whole family because, you know, they've separated their courts. If, if I'm correct, obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but they've separated their courts for veterans um, to specifically treat veterans in a separate court system to the civilian population. Is that correct? Well, in about 200 counties in yeah. the United States, yes, but they're not, it's not widespread yet, and there are efforts made to increase it because it is showing great efficacy in turning around a family who someone may have gotten a DUI or someone may have gotten into a fight, those kinds of things, but they're not totally prevalent. So it is, it does work. It is showing great efficacy, but for those who don't have that option, the loss of trust or safety in the home, what are some options that you would offer to the parents, to the family, to the community, to the church leaders to the community leaders? Um, I think that's about, you know, collaboration, because if, if that, if, if them 200 states are, are getting a service right, then why has no, 200 counties. Sorry, yeah, 200 counties. Yeah, sorry. that's not very many in the, no. in the United States. But if, if that is um, producing best practice and, and pertinent evidence, then there's a question of why isn't it being spread nationally? Um, <laughs> And that that might probably come down to funding or or want want it to happen. And you know, there's a, there is an attitude of you know veterans are getting everything. But if if you've served your country and you have been presented with a condition due to that service, then I think it's 
it's right and proper that you are looked after for doing that because you've put yourself in that situation mostly on, on, on a, a voluntary basis. So I think the evidence within the um, criminal justice system there shows that if you can keep someone out of the judicial system um, and give them a second chance with additional support, mm-hmm. and that support looks at not just you know, the, the person who has been, you know, arrested or, or, or committed the crime, but it looks at the functioning of the family um, and how they got to that uh, position in the first place, then what they're doing, they were reducing their own costs. Because I know um, in the US, your custodial sentences are very, very long mm-hmm. for what can sometimes be a, a minor issue. So rather than spend you know, 10, 15 years of public money going into the judicial system to house one person, then a fraction of that money can can kind of look at mending or or mending the family to, to reduce um, <clears throat> the amount of times that a person comes through the judicial system. So that's that those twen- those 200 counties have looked at the longitudinal aspect of, you know, veteran crime after mm-hmm. conflict, you know, mm-hmm. and, and if that works, then great. They have an get, 88% get success rate. That's incredible. The, I know in the county I live in at my, at the, about six months ago when we had ours approved, our veterans uh, court approved here in Florida, the, the judge that was uh, hosting it or was trying to get it passed, it, it took 18 months to get it, get it all approved. So again, you know, I think it's more of a burden than maybe some towns or counties want to take on at this point. But it, it, with an 88 cents success rate, you would think they'd want to jump all over that. Oh, absolutely. Um, one of the, one of, you know, I know we're limited on time, so I just, uh, I'd like to uh, ask about, you know, some, a children's issue, going back to that, who who may not feel safe at home anymore. You know, they're, they're maybe, they, maybe they lost faith in the environment they're living in. Mm-hmm. So how would we convey that it is safe at home? How would we convey and, and get them to start believing in that home structure again? Um, I think that comes down to physical assessment um, and um, using uh, an objective practitioner to to support subjective feelings. Because when you're in a situation, I think the majority of the times you you can only see what is going on it through your eyes. You can't see the big picture. So I think we need to kind of put services in place to to assess a whole family and to, to look at, you know, safety factors. You know, if if this is a trigger, then what should I do? If that's a trigger, what should we do? But it's not what I should do. It's what should we do as a family? Because what we have to kind of reprogram for, for want of a better word, the, the family again to function as a family. And I'm not saying that all families don't function um, or they didn't function before and now they have to, but there's a different complexity that's returned home that wasn't there in the first place. Um, you know, you can have marital issues and family issues, you know, in every walk of life. But I think when you've been in a combat zone for such a long period of time, uh, and I know through a lot of the research that I've been reading that, that um, those who are actively serving pretty much forget about their family because they don't want to 
lose concentration. They want to get back to their family. So if you've forgotten for all intensive purposes about your family for 18 months with the odd phone call here and there, then you have to kind of relearn about your family. And if you have PTSD or another you know, illness or injury, that has to be learned about as well. And that has to be done as a whole family. And it's not a whole family straight away. It's about looking at periods of time that will flow naturally. And that takes patience. Um, so if we are using a model of care, which we are, is providing a triage service um, straight from uh, leaving a hospital then we are there straight away to provide that safety net. Um, and that's kind of what we need to look at. And I don't think safety net's the right word because, you know, nets have holes in. So uh, we have a safe safety blanket so no one falls through the holes. But it's about supporting that family through the whole journey and not just picking them up at the end um, where they are in absolute crisis. And then, you know, this is where... Um, if if it isn't picked up straight away, this is where we have major issues of self harm, bullying, suicide. You know, packed suicide, where you know teenagers have got together and said, you know, right. we can we can do you know on on Thursday we'll we'll go down to this and we'll do this and then pass it on. You know, that is you know so prevalent within communities at the minute, um, but we can't fix a family the families can't fix themselves on their own in the majority of cases where it has gone so far um that the family have lost all sight of what's going on that even if it's short term they need that objective assessment and support just to put them on the track to move forward again you know it, it's our culture our military culture in america has been historically one of supporting the veterans. The families have been secondary. In recent decades, the family has gained more uh, visibility. Yeah. However, the children are still less visible and a retreat here and there has been seen. Finding true, uh, there, there is a group in the Navy called FOCUS and yeah. that's on several bases. And they have been, for years, focusing on the family itself, no pun intended. But it is not something that is in the culture yet. And mm -hmm. these, it, it's seen as, well, you know, your military family are the most resilient in the world. And they are, for the most part. But I think that, you know, we forget that not just military families, but first responder families mm -hmm. are living under stresses and strains on a daily basis and Absolutely. sometimes it's a danger, sometimes it's just being different, and that adds to children. So how do we recognize and support and care for our youngest military members? We can give them what you're talking about with the physical assessment, but I think that's going to be a long time in coming thoroughly in the um, veterans community. But yeah. I want to make sure, first of all, let's let you talk about the organization you're with and some of the services that actually outline a lot of services that we have just talked about. Because I want to make sure that people know where to find out more information. And then if you could perhaps close with how, how, how do we best recognize and support our neighbors? Great. Yes, of course. So um, at Hero Mission, what we're kind of looking at is um, we've got... Uh, 10 different programs um, so we're looking at 
um, how uh, young children who are maybe caregivers uh, have their adult uh, interactions. So what we've been discussing today, um, an on-duty triage team, um, justice for children who are in the justice system, children who've got um, substance abuse issues. Uh, we've also created a photo fari, so that's about looking at narratives, so children can tell their stories through um, photos and pictures, and then they can have their family member come in board, so that's about bringing the families together. We also have um, a faith one as well, mm -hmm. um, and we have an impact council, and we're looking at um, a scholarship program as well. Um, so that's kind of, in a nutshell, what we're what we're doing at Hero Mission. Um, so what we want to do is, you know, to, to use to use a phrase from that focus um, research that you uh, service you spoke about is, you know, the stronger family, stronger forces. And mm -hmm. let's let's not forget that a lot of the military recruit from within military families. So if you look absolutely, after, if you look after the children, you know you're going to get a strong physically and mentally um, strong young adult join your forces. So it's in the military's best interest for me to look after the children. And for us, we believe that too. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise, Paul. And that URL is heromissions.org. Heromissions, plural, dot org. We really do appreciate you bringing up this, putting a spotlight on very, very difficult but very important topic because we truly believe that everyone serves and together we make a difference. So those of you in the military community, look out for your children and talk open channels of communication. Find ways to raise the, the conversation level because it's all about conversation. Thank you for listening to us. You can find out more at militarynetworkradio.com. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in today to Military Network Radio. You can find our show at our website, www.toginet.com forward slash Military Network Radio. Also, www.militarynetworkradio.com. And in iTunes under Military Network Radio. Join us next week when we bring you another program to enhance 